Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. For four decades, the parties of the right in Anglo-America have been melting together in thought, deed, and behavior. Let the historical record show that the process reached apotheosis on Tuesday, September 24th, 2019. On that day, the United Kingdom Supreme Court unanimously ruled Prime Minister Boris Johnson's suspension of Parliament was null and void. A few hours later, as the earth continued to rotate uninterrupted on its axis by the drama, impeachment proceedings were finally launched against President Donald Trump in the U.S. House of Representatives. The dual rebuke brought identical responses from the two men, bluff, bluster, aggression, and total disregard for the checks and balances both countries' constitutions have in place on executive power. They were aided and abetted in this by a well-paid contingent of opinion formers who make a handsome living stoking right-wing outrage. They were cheered on by the right's elected members of Congress and Parliament who have turned the Republican and Conservative parties from broad-based movements into narrow political factions, factions that seem quite happy to use rhetoric that could lead to violent civil unrest. Same locutions, enemies of the people fake news, and so on, some of them from the uncontrolled ids of the leaders, some of them market-tested by the same polling firms, either side of the Atlantic. Modern conservatism started out as a political reaction to the post-war consensus in the U.S. and U.K. The simultaneous arrival of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher in power, intent on curbing unions and removing regulations on business, including financial speculators, confirmed we had entered the age of reaction. Reagan and Thatcher were serious politicians of genuine conviction, forged by their experience growing up in the Great Depression and then World War II. They were tested in election after election before achieving the highest office. Now, the movement they brought to power is led by two charlatans who have never won a national election. Donald Trump lost to Hillary Clinton by over three million votes. It's only the vagaries of the Electoral College that put him in office. Boris Johnson was selected by a mere 92,000 of the Tory faction's members. They are men who govern only for their factions, not their nation's citizens as a whole, egged on by a propaganda machine, not just in the press, but in right-wing think tanks, although ideological institutes is the more accurate description. Trump Johnson, or Britain Trump, as the president calls him, are kept afloat because the non-propaganda wing of the news media has yet to figure out how to deal with the fire hose of horseshit that regularly emanates from the pair's mouths. Prime example is the word deal. Everything with them is a deal. Let's Make a Deal was a game show that ran for decades on American television. Its UK spin-off was called Trick or Treat. Both names are apt for these times. Let's make a very substantial U.S.-U.K. trade deal, says Trump to Johnson, as if it was in his gift. I can get a better deal than the 500-plus page withdrawal agreement negotiated by Theresa May before October 31st, Johnson tells Parliament, even though the EU's negotiators say often and sincerely no renegotiation is possible. Here's how you make a deal with the EU, Trump tells the Times of London. Make Nigel Farage, lead negotiator, tell them the UK won't pay the £39 billion agreed already as the divorce bill, and then send in lawyers to sue the EU. Johnson agrees with the approach, although perhaps not the personnel choice. 
According to Politico's European edition, Johnson told the Institute of Directors last year, imagine Trump doing Brexit. There'd be all sorts of breakdowns, all sorts of chaos. Everyone would think he'd gone mad. But actually, you might get somewhere. It's a very, very good thought. The press usually reports each statement without a nod to the difficulty and length of time most trade deals take to negotiate and then get ratified. In late 1993, I spent three sleepless days and nights in Geneva for NPR, covering the end of the Uruguay round of global trade talks that created the WTO. The talks had been going on for seven years at that point. Trade negotiations confused me more than any story I ever reported. Who knew the kinds of trade-offs and political considerations that went into deciding a trade deal? You want to protect your clothing manufacturers. Fine, then you're going to have to give ground on another industry. Who do those workers vote for? What region of the country is that industry located in? And tariffs on physical goods are only part of it. I did a feature on one of the big sticking points in those negotiations. Cultural products, like movies. To support their domestic film industry, France put a small tax on every ticket purchased for a foreign-made film. This encouraged cinema owners to book French films, and the money collected went directly to the French film industry. The U.S. said the tax was a form of protectionism. And up to a point, it was, if you think of movies and culture as product, in the same way that you think of clothing as product. French film distributors and others countered by pointing out that U.S. film companies, business rivals in America, had combined into a single entity for European distribution. This Europe-based company had a nasty habit of saying to theater owners, if you want to show the next Star Wars film, then you have to show these other films that won't be as popular. That's an unfair use of monopoly power, the Europeans said. Well, yes, up to a point it was. I remember interviewing the head of the main U.S. distribution company in Europe down a phone line. Before he came on, two lawyers identified themselves, tough Irish guys from New York. They told me they were listening in and taking notes. I was not to imply that the distribution company was using anything like monopoly power, and they would be monitoring to see how I used the interview. Their threat was implicit. In the event... Cultural products were left out of the final negotiation. Maybe someone from the British delegation pointed out to the Americans that the BBC is also funded by a tax, and no one on the U.S. side wanted to be responsible for killing masterpiece theater. You get my point. Trade deals aren't magicked out of thin air. They represent a commitment to stability. Presidents and prime ministers come and go— this week gave a hint of the strong possibility that by the end of next year neither Trump nor Johnson will be in office. Yet, if Britain leaves the EU, negotiations for a whole new set of trading relations with the entire world would just be getting underway. It will be a time-consuming task. For example, negotiations on a Canada-EU trade deal began in 2008. They were concluded in 2014, and the ratification process among EU countries took until 2017 to complete. It would be nice if news media reports about Brexit deals were always framed by this fact. Of course, Donald Trump and his friend... Britain, Trump, don't really adhere to the norms of government. 
Trump's style of deal-making comes from the strand of American business based on the saying, if you owe the bank $10,000, it's your problem. If you owe the bank $10 million, it's the bank's problem. Trump businesses have gone bankrupt four or six times, depending on who's doing the counting, because the banks decided to take action about their problem and wanted their loans repaid. His other form of deal-making is signing contracts he has no intention of honoring. Trump was sued over 3,500 times in the decades before becoming president, mostly by contractors who he stiffed on payment. If they sue him, his army of lawyers sues back. Trump has brought the same business attitude to statecraft. That's what lies behind the impeachment proceedings announced this week. In a phone call with Ukraine's newly elected President Volodymyr Zelensky, he tried to use the leverage of military aid to get a personal favor from the man. The call can be summarized this way. You know that package of military aid you were promised? I'll make you a deal. Do a little investigation into Joe Biden's son's activities in your fair country, and I'll see about releasing it. Johnson should probably reassess whether this kind of blunt approach will work with the EU, or whether Trump's business record makes him a reliable negotiating partner for a future relationship. Prime Minister Britain Trump might also want to remember the premise of the TV show, Let's Make a Deal. The person making the deal doesn't know if he or she is getting something of greater value, or a prize called a zonk, something that has little or no value. Trick or treat indeed. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. I promise you someday I will be able to do podcasts that aren't about Brexit and Donald Trump. But for the moment, that's just not possible. So if you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, why don't you visit the website, www.goldfarbpod.com, click on the donation button. Make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.